I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi there, this is James from the Stock Club podcast. Before we start today's episode, I just wanted to let you know about an exclusive offer we're running here at My Wall Street for listeners of the Stock Club podcast. For a limited time only, brand new users of the My Wall Street app can get an extended 30-day free trial, four times longer than our standard trial. That means that you can access our full list of more than 100 stock picks, our stock of the month selections that have smashed the market's returns, and all of the rest of our investing content for free for 30 days. To avail of this offer, simply download the My Wall Street app using the link in the notes for today's show. Don't miss this great opportunity to get a head start in your investing life. Hi there and welcome to the Stock Club Podcast, coming to you from the top floor of my Wall Street HQ here in Dublin, Ireland. I'm James and with me this week is my Wall Street co-founder and chief investor Emmett Savage and our head analyst Rory Caron. Today we're talking about Peloton's upcoming IPO, Ulta Beauty's 30% drop last week and the two companies that surprised us most with their success. So in the last episode, Rory, we were talking about WeWork and their upcoming IPO. This week, we're going to talk about another company fighting for IPO soon. Yeah, it's a company called Peloton, yep. uh, which you know, we talked last week about how mad and... Uh, shady. Not, I wouldn't say shady, but just like very <laughs> kind of uh, fuzzy-wuzzy kind of language was used in WeWork's S1. <laughs> So what's the difference between shady and fuzzy wuzzy? Uh, it's just kind of like kind of uh, who's that woman who's running for president? Who was like Oprah's guru, Marianne Williamson or something? Oh yeah, Is that yeah, it? yeah. The way she talks about like love and energy and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. That I feel I find that creeping into a lot of S ones recently. <laughs> you know, people they're not talking about re- they want to talk about the numbers. They want to talk about how they make people feel. Yeah, a bit airy fairy. Yes, yeah, so you can see that a little bit in, on Peloton's uh, S one as well. Is it's, it as bad as we were? No, it's not as bad okay. as we were at all. Actually, the, I was actually impressed by the S one. Uh, I was well, we'll get to that in the end. But uh, the, one of the first lines they say is, "We sell happiness." <sighs> <laughs> I know. Oh. So they just get into that. They get in quite right away. Uh, they're not as bad as we were, who are yeah. like literally going to change the world and yeah. cure cancer and end <laughs> poverty and you know that kind of thing. Mm. But uh, Peloton, in case anyone doesn't know, is a exercise uh, equipment company. And um, the main kind of idea is they sell you an exercise bike as their main product uh, for about two thousand uh, dollars, and it's got a, a screen attached. And then you pay a subscription of $40 a month to watch live exercise classes and they'll kind of, and you can compete against people and uh, mm. you can get kind of your metrics worked out and stuff like that, your performance measured and things like that. So um, when I first heard the idea, I thought that's crackers. It sounds like an exercise bike with an iPad glued onto it. Yeah. Um, but actually the business is operating quite well. Um they're looking for to raise about five hundred million in this IPO, and the last time they were privately valued, which is just about a year ago, they were valued just over four billion dollars. Their revenue has grown incredibly fast. Last June, they reported revenue for the year of nine hundred and fifteen million, 
which was a 110% increase on last year's revenue, which itself was a 100% increase on the year before revenue. So revenue's up fourfold in two years. Losses have also grown. Yeah. They're not profitable, as just like every company that's IPOing this year. They lost about 240 million last year. Now, in fairness to them, a lot of that was them buying back stock from employees uh, as part of a secondary offering. Um, but the sale of bikes, if you look at the, the S1, the sale of the bikes is pretty much making up for the cost to acquire a customer. And that means that their subscriptions will pretty much fall straight to the bottom line once they make a certain scale. Uh, so in, if you, if you, in fact, if you'd removed R&D and G&A from the equation last year, the company would have been profitable. And the G&A figure was highly inflated by that secondary offering, which I mentioned. Uh, they claim they have 12-month retention rate of 95%. They also believe they have a very uh, serviceable, addressable market of about 14 million people in the US, UK, Germany and Canada, which are the only markets they're available in right now. And they currently have about 500,000 active subscriptions. So, you know, they haven't penetrated, they're about 4% penetration of what they think is a serviceable, addressable market, which is people that uh, could afford the bike, would be interested in the product um, and that they think they could get eventually. Yeah. So is it better than the Bowflex? <laughs> yeah, Nautilus I mean, I, uh, part two I think they could have something to do with what was the insane decline of Nautilus yeah. uh, but if, I mean like a lot of the I think uh, criticism of this company is that it's very expensive yeah and it's it's very geared towards a, a very affluent market well in their marketing certainly it is geared towards an affluent market <laughs> there's a great Twitter thread of, uh, of screenshots of their advertisements which is people setting up their Peloton bike in like the fanciest conservatory you've ever seen look over or overlooking kind of New York City from the penthouse Uh, but actually I've done a little bit of calculation and it's not actually expensive at all Really? No It's uh, if you if they let's say they sell you a Peloton bike which at the moment is $2,245 which includes delivery and setup Uh, they're also offering by the way 39 month financing at 0% APR just in the US So that would make monthly installments of $58. Yeah. You add on the subscription, which is $39, so you got $97 per month. Mm. Uh, the average subscriber, according to them, does 11 and a half workouts per month. So that boils down to $8.40 for every workout. Okay. Now, if you look at something like SoulCycle, they're charging $35 per workout, which is a competitor which is just basically a spinning class in a gym. Yeah. So, I mean, if you want to do workouts, this yeah. is a really, really cheap option, like yeah. on a monthly basis. <laughs> now, do you get a better workout in your own home than you do in a gym? Is Probably not, because it's probably a kind of motivating factor of being surrounded by other, other sweaty people. people. Yeah. But at the same time, with that massive subscriber base, they can amateurize costs and get like the best instructors out there. So yeah. there's a kind of give and take there. So I'm a big fan. I'm a yeah. big fan of the product. And I'm, I, I think that... 2,000 bucks is the ballpark and um, my family and I went out shopping for a treadmill for our, our home about a year and a half ago and that was the price point. You I know, do Peloton sell treadmills as well? They do. They've the, It's a newer product and it costs more. It costs about twice as much. Right. Um, okay. So I don't know what the... The, the reason for that is I suppose right, right. treadmills have to kind of go up and down sure as yeah, well, yeah. Don't it might they, be to, more engineering yeah, yeah. Um, um, but if, for me that is the kind of ballpark of what you'd expect and products that take away customer pain are kind of geared to succeed no pun intended and we have in Peloton a product that allows people to work out 
you know, from their home, obviously enough. No trip to and from the gym required. No kind of uh, having to dress in the latest gear to look good in the gym or worrying what anyone else thinks. And I think all those collectively, along with the classes that you described, I think make for a very uh, compelling proposition. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they're digitising your time. You know, if, yeah. if you don't have to worry about when you're getting to class or getting to the gym or getting changed and all that kind of stuff, that's a huge benefit for yeah. people. It really removes the friction. Yeah. And just on the on a margin side, they're, they have incredible margins on the hardware. So they're making 45% gross margins on those bikes, which if you compare it to Apple, which is the king of tech hardware margins, they only make 30%. Wow. Now, the sub- subscription margins aren't at the levels you would expect from a pure SaaS play, but... I mean, they're spending a lot of money getting the final product better yeah, so that yeah. they will grow with scale. Yeah. So Speaking of the bikes then, so if you sign up for Peloton and you, you do your 12 months and then you decide it's not for you, what do you do with that so bike or treadmill? I'm glad you asked because uh, <laughs> I checked around and they do have a very high resale value. Okay. So, you know, which is strange for exercise equipment, but I suppose the high cost would lead people to just go out and look for any kind of discount they can. Yeah. So, I mean, there's bikes that are selling for only a couple of hundred quid less than the the original price so it's easy enough to shift and yeah so it's I mean like it's you know you don't you're not stuck with it if you if you decide you, you don't want yeah. to do it and I suppose as well the high cost will probably motivate you a bit more to use it which that's is, what I was going to say I'd say that contributes towards the retention rate a little bit that yeah, <laughs> you, you want to justify that big outlay for at least 12 months or something yeah I think so cool so that's Peloton so yeah, on the shortlist or it's on the shortlist we'll see what it, what it floats at yeah. that would be a big mm. thing because um, you know if a uh, at four billion, it looks very attractive. If it gets into the ten billion mark, it does we'll beyond me. Completely to, agree. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we'll have to. Based on the five hundred million number you just uh, gave us there, I was thinking, yeah, anything around three and a half to four and a half billion would be interesting. Mm, very interesting. Yeah. Speaking of valuations, I actually forgot to mention at the start of the podcast. Uh, we all went for our first Beyond Meat burger yes. last yeah. week. What were the What were our thoughts? I was very impressed with it. Yeah, I was very impressed. Yeah, as well. it was. It was a very very close match. Yeah, like it tasted better than a lot of we had we had it in a chain that I wouldn't normally be a massive fan of. Yeah, uh, in terms of the quality, but I thought it was better than any of mm. the beef burgers I've ever had there. Yeah, um, the only thing that so the first thing you notice is it's like it's the patties are so uniform that makes them look very processed and that mm. would kind of turn me if I saw that yeah. in a normal restaurant yeah. that yeah. would be a big turn off for me because yeah. um, I like kind of fresh ingredients and I like yeah. to know that it's like been made in the kitchen and all that kind of stuff so even though I was really impressed by it and I thought the taste was excellent mm. it's probably I'll probably never order one again because when I yeah. go out and want to get a burger I want to feel the get the fresh taste of what that restaurant is offering whereas this is going to taste the exact same everywhere you go yeah, that's that's a good fair point, but I think it it would push people maybe around the fence towards you know vegetarianism or even veganism. I think it could push them over with being a, a viable alternative. Yeah, it'd be interesting on checking out the the mints, um, because yeah, I make a lot product. of stuff with mince meat at home, and yeah. if you can make chili con carne or spaghetti bolognese with that, that would be a huge. Yeah, we had a debate in our home that night and uh, about the Beyond Meat burger, and certainly. Uh, I had the same concerns as Rory when you kind of look closely you can see it's it's uniformity yeah. is disconcerting but <laughs> yeah. I didn't especially like the aroma I thought the taste was spot on and I think the four of us agreed that had we not been told 
that it was a pea protein and brown rice uh, <laughs> uh, patty that we would have thought it was meat. Oh, 100%. Yeah, yeah, you could 100%. have easily been fooled. I don't know if it was just real or imagined, but I felt fuller for longer after it. So I don't know about its glycomic loading, but <laughs> certainly it filled me up. Yeah, I thought it was delicious. And um, whenever it's an option, unlike you, Rory, I'd probably go first because I, I'd like to reduce the amount of meat. meat. I mean, I do it at home. Yeah, for sure. But when I'm out, like when I go to a restaurant, I'm like I'm out yeah. there for a meal yeah. that I want to taste something kind of different. Whatever the restaurant's offering that's yeah. better than the other burger places around. Yeah. So yeah. if I if I know I'm getting something that's going to taste exactly like the one I've already had, yeah, I'm probably going to pass yeah. on it. Uh, yeah, the minced meat. I agree with you. There's more latitude for flavor variants. I guess. Yeah. Moving on then, Emmett. Um, what's going on with Ulta Beauty these days? Ulta Beauty. Ulta Beauty, uh, I'll describe what the business does first, I guess, just to remind our listeners. Ulta Beauty is a beauty salon or a chain of beauty salons across the US. Uh, It has, on last count, circa 1,200 locations in 50 states and 90% are off-mall. They have a whole bunch of products. I mean, anything you can imagine related to personal care and beauty, Ulta Beauty. sell and their services are everything from hair, skin, brow, makeup, that kind of thing. When you look at the business and its growth over the last few years from 2014 to 2018 inclusive, it's been like the stirs in your home uh, with respect to sales. Sales has steadily increased every year from 2014 to 2018 and earnings per share has also increased in a very predictable upward cycle. So Ulta Salon has been uh, tremendously successful over the five plus years that were up until now. Uh, And they at the moment have about 7% share of the $90 billion beauty products market. So Ulta Salon, I think to most listeners in the US, um, and I'd hazard say most female listeners in the US, is a known brand. So last Thursday night, the stock market closed as it does, at which point Ulta Beauty was about 338 bucks per share. The CEO and her team sat down and spoke into a microphone about Q2. And the next morning, the stock opened and shares were down almost 30 percent, 27 percent to about 248 yeah. bucks a share. Now, not to the question you asked, James, but the first non-related point, I think, is worth making is um, this is a wonderful example of why we don't like out of hours trades. Yeah, exactly. You know, retail as retail investors, you know, we should only buy when the market is open and things like this happen too often for someone who wants to beat the market. Mm. So the top line don't read is out of hours trades are not good and and Ulta Salon demonstrated that between market close and open last Thursday and Friday night morning. So what happened? Well, firstly, Ulta did well but not as well as analysts has, had targeted. And the second thing was CEO Mary Dillon spoke about headwinds in 2019, which is the polite society way of saying that the year ahead will not be what was originally intended. So if I can just kind of go deeper on those two headlines. Yep. So looking at the actuals versus analyst expectations, revenue was up 12%, which is pretty good, to about $1.67 billion on the quarter. Analysts had targeted 1.75 
billion. So they brought in uh, 1.67 and as expected 1.75 billion. Uh, secondly, on the same heading, heading of actuals versus analysts' expectations, earnings per share increased by 12.2%, which again yep. is very respectable. It's a great number uh, and increased to about two bucks 76 cent per share and analysts had targeted two bucks 80 per share. So the first, I suppose, problem, if you like, was that the company missed what analysts had predicted on average. Okay. The second, I guess, is what did Mary Dillon and her team say? And these headwinds I mentioned, it's the truth, or at least the, the greater insight is more about where the CEO and their team see the business going. Yeah. So um, earnings per share are only expected to grow this year. Um, between 4 and 6% compared to the last guidance they gave of between 6 and 7%. Um, and the full year EPS forecast range was cut by nearly a dollar. So from around 13 bucks per share to about 12 bucks per share. And the CFO Scott Statterson explained uh, that the company had anticipated an improving trend in prestige makeup and strong growth in the overall market. Uh, that had not materialised. And so the sky fell down and the company saw an $8 billion drop in its market cap while we rested our heads in bed. Yeah. Um, now, in the quarter that was uh, Q2, the company opened another 20 stores, its gross margins improved, and on the whole, when I looked at what happened, I believe the market uh, overreacted. You could also say that the market readjusted to say that this is no longer a growth story, which I think is is probably true. Yeah. But another truth is that beauty salons, uh, whether a simple barber shop on the corner of your street or a giant brand like Ulta Salon, um, they provide a service that cannot go into the cloud. Now, they might sell products that can be bought online, yeah. but when you go to get your hair fixed or made up or your eyebrows, you know, HD'd or whatever, <laughs> you got to go to a person. And Ulta yeah. Salon are dominant in the area. And, and usually I'm very sceptical of when a CEO says that they're confident about long-term growth immediately after announcing unfavourable news. But in this instance, this instance, I think Ulta is at a price that will beat the S&P 500 from today yeah. over the five plus years ahead. So when Mary Dillon said that she was confident in the long term growth prospects, certainly in light of the 27, what, what is now 30% drop since last Thursday's price, I tend to agree. Um, and that's, you know, is a business Amazon proof. And uh, while nothing is supremely Amazon proof, uh, I think Ulta is in a really good position. And, and I didn't like that the arrow has fallen somewhat but they're continuing to open stores, which isn't necessarily a good thing, but they're doing it based on some of the best management, one of the best management teams in America. They have an awesome customer loyalty program. And um, I actually am very, I'm, I'm, I'm very interested in the stock right now. Yeah. It's funny that uh, even with the 30% drop, I mean, they just, they're back, they're still above where they were in January. Yeah. 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 It, it seems very extreme. It does, yeah. But then they'd had a very good last quarter yeah. And, yeah. And, and possibly this was a kind of, a readjustment, yeah, a, a readjustment yeah. from what might have been the yeah. stock heating up a little too much. I thought I thought the earnings call was very interesting. She, Mary Dillon, clearly indicating that this was a, a macro uh, event, not necessarily poor execution on their part. Yeah, that just the makeup and cosmetics market has really softened in two thousand nineteen, and I actually think 
she noted a kind of lack of innovation yeah. within the industry, said, um, I'll just read a little quote here. We've seen strong growth in cosmetics driven by new rituals and application techniques like contouring and brow styling and innovative new product formats like liquid lip, palettes and minis. This innovation resulted in new makeup routines requiring new products, which drove strong incremental growth. And apparently that's just not happening yeah. at the so moment. So there's no hot trend there's right now. There's yeah. not a hot yeah. trend going on. Yeah. Um, I mean, there was some stuff in the earnings call that I thought was very positive. You know, they're, they've got a new exclusive deal with Kim Kardashian, mm-hmm. who has, you know, 150 million Instagram followers. There's a new range coming out by Millie Bobby Brown from Stranger, Stranger Things, Things. Yeah. who's quite popular as well, a kind of up-and-coming uh, influencer, perhaps. Yeah. Um, I suppose the big question is, is this a signal that there is a trend of people spending less money on cos- cosmetics overall, perhaps embracing kind of a more natural look going forward. Mm. Yeah, um, I, I think she mentioned something like that yeah. in, in her statements too, that yeah. there was a kind of a trend towards skincare rather than cosmetics. Yeah, so, I mean, there's uh, I, we've there's jokes going around Dublin all the time that younger p- people are wearing far too much of it and yeah. there's bad names being said about them and <laughs> certain... Uh, but uh, or jokes being made about yeah. on their expense, I haven't seen any sign that that's dying down personally. But no, yeah. Perhaps there is a movement there that we're we're seeing in the numbers. Yeah, well, it's it's I don't know. Maybe maybe these are false correlations, but there's a wider kind of shift. We were talking about beyond meat earlier, shift from kind of more social conscience, and I don't know if cosmetics fall into that necessarily. But I remember we talked once before about brands as well in in clothing. How people are kind of moving away from branded clothing towards more generic. Mm. So yeah, that's right. It's, a, it's, a it's the anti-brand. Change. The eighty-seven billion dollar beauty products market that I mentioned earlier. On, if you go to Ulta's uh, investor relations website by just googling Ulta IOR, on the very front page of it, you'll see a very nice kind of seventeen-page presentation on their business and the overall market. And uh, what I find interesting was the how. Um, how giant the market opportunity remains and yeah. the the 87 billion market 15% of that 87 billion is hair care 23% is skin and 20% is cosmetics so over half of the addressable market comes from hair, skin and cosmetics. And then it has a longer tail on fragrance and bathware and other things but they, they are positioned to um, capitalise on whatever is hot at the moment. Yeah. And I tend to um, listen and accept as the truth when they say a headwind was no hot trend, Mm -hmm. uh, to paraphrase Mary Dillon, because it's kind of true. Even here in the streets of Dublin, um, we would be, I suppose, laggards when you look at certain products. Like if we go back to Peloton. Or even trends. Trends, yeah, yeah, full stop. Like uh, Peloton's just starting to loop back is now has adverts on TV here in Ireland. And that is a sign to me of pure globalisation. And when we look at the streets to Ulta Salon, HD eyebrows were a thing in Ireland Mm. about a year ago. And certainly I haven't heard or seen or observed any hot trend at this moment. So to me, what Mary Dillon said was, absolutely the truth mm. and we might find in three months time there's a new hot trend and that could be a tailwind for Ulta Salon but uh, certainly in the big picture I still love how they're positioned and I, I love how 
beauty uh, is synonymous with going to a kind of hair care is synonymous with going to somebody to do it for you. Yeah, it's very experiential. It is experiential. It's more than just how you look. It's how you feel in the moment Mm. and from the moment you walk in the doors to out the doors again. I think as well, I mean, if there is a shift in what people are buying, I would trust that management team to pivot in the right direction. I was going to say we're big fans of Mary Dillon here. You've spoken about her before. Yeah. Is she still on the board of Starbucks? She is, of course. She is, yeah. 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 Cool. So that's, uh, we're not too concerned about Ulta then? No. Yeah. I think it's a buy. The moment, so actually. do I. Yeah. So do I. Bold statement. So moving on then. Um, so just here's some of the more recent things in the My Wall Street app at the moment. We're at the start of a new month, so that means there's loads of great things to check out, including September's Stock of the Month, which went live this week. We also have a brand new stock joining our market being list on Monday. Rory, do you want to give a clue? One of your famous cryptic clues? No. <laughs> Helpful. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you didn't tell me. I had to, like, I'd come more. up with something like, interesting if you gave me some sort of. <laughs> I like catching you. I like catching you on the top. <laughs> Have you picked it? <laughs> yes. Do you know what it I, is? I know what it is. It's just um, enough. I haven't got a clever <laughs> thing to say about it right now. <laughs> Uh, I also want to remind you that we've our very first seminar event coming up in person. This is your opportunity to meet Emmett and the rest of my Wall Street analyst team and absorb more than 25 years of investing experience in just one day. For more information about in-person, please visit inperson.mywallstreet.com. That's I-N-P-E-R-S-O-N dot mywallstreet.com. And finally, don't forget about the extended free trial we're offering to listeners of the Stock Club podcast. If you've never used my Wall Street app before, and want to avail of a 30-day free trial, just follow the link in the notes for today's show. Right, jargon busters. So we got a few questions in this month. Emmett, I'm going to come to you first. So Stephen wrote into us and asked, what is a W8BENE form and why do I need it for investing? Okay, so the W8BEN form is a piece of paper used by non-resident aliens earning income from the from US sources. So why does owning stock qualify as earning income? Because a lot of stocks pay dividends. But we need to pause. What is an alien? An <laughs> alien primarily refers to extraterrestrial life, which, <laughs> which does not originate from Earth. That is the Oxford Dictionary of an alien. But in this context, it means somebody born in Dublin or Edinburgh or Paris or Sydney or anywhere outside of the 50 states of America. So we three are aliens, which I think most of our listeners have concluded by now anyway. Um, The W8 Ben's purpose is mainly to let a broker know that the, the person in question is not subject to the usual tax withholding from investment income. So it's a form you fill out to tell your broker in the US that you're not American. Okay. Uh, American citizens and resident aliens do not need to use the W-8 form. They use the imaginative, imaginatively named W-9 form, and that <laughs> certifies their tax identification number. Um, and I don't know what they did with W-1 all the way up to W-7, but when you get to eight, you're an alien, and when you get to nine, you're an American citizen. So, <laughs> so the W eight Ben is a is a piece of uh, well digital paper that you fill yeah. in once a year. I think it's I think it's once a year. Uh, you fill it in when your broker asks you. Yeah. It's a very very simple form. It's a one pager. Uh, back in the day, you'd fill it out with a pen. You can do it now thanks to DocuSign and similar services. Um, 
uh, in a jiffy and uh, you just have to do it and a failure to provide it will result in awful things um, <laughs> most especially uh, 30% tax withholding okay. and penalties so the bottom line is you don't need to fear it it's a very simple form it's legally mandated your broker will ask you for it when they need it for non-US citizens for non-US citizens for okay. aliens <laughs> right um, so next question then um, Rory what do we think about low cost brokers and will they ever affect the market um, what do we think about them yeah, is, well I mean they have certainly democratised investing for a lot more people than was available beforehand yeah you know um, 20 years ago it was a well probably not 20 years you were investing 20 years ago yeah. and they didn't have the kind of crazy minimums or whatever did they it was uh, they did I mean my first online brokerage account was Daytech 25 years ago right. and they had definitely they had a minimum yeah yeah but they I mean they used to have it used to be kind of outside the realm of the average oh yeah yeah it was yes. several thousand bucks yeah, yeah. Um, and you know crazy fees that yeah. just uh, were you know unpalatable to most people and so people tended to stay away from the stock market or, or do it purely through their, their pension fund. Um, discount brokers or, lo, or bro, uh, low-cost brokers, as, as uh, the questionnaire is asked, uh, the, they have just made it very simple for people to invest in stocks. They charge yeah. uh, minimum commissions. Uh, if some, even. If even any commissions. Yeah. You know, you've got certain, certain companies charging zero commissions. And it just opens up investing to an awful lot more people. Now, in the, the thing to remember is that the old brokers the, used to provide a lot more services, a lot more of an holistic service than discount brokers do. Yeah. So discount bro brokers, for example, are not a fiduciary. They are not responsible for giving you advice on how to manage your money in any way. So if you go to it, they are execution only, as we as we say. Okay. So if you go in there with and want to buy a thousand shares of a very volatile share that will take up all the money in your portfolio, your discount broker is not going to say mm, that's not a good idea. Yeah, okay, they're just yeah. going to do it. And, so they don't um, give the guidance as yeah. such. Yeah, no, no, it's a utilitarian service. I, like if you take it, uh, there's an analogy between a broker and what my Wall Street does, and uh, it's it, the analogy sits like, for example, a drugstore and a doctor. Mm. And a drugstore, if you walk in with a prescription, hands you whatever it says. Yeah, it doesn't debate. It doesn't ask you how you're feeling. It gives you what it it basically is told to give you and that's exactly the role of a broker yeah they fulfill an order based on your desires or requirements or whatever and and that's the end of it there is no opinion and my wall street we have positioned our business uh as i see like the doctor where it's it's the wisdom yeah we are applying intelligence to the ten thousand listed vehicles and uh and and that's the the area of the world we sit in Okay, interesting. The, uh, yeah, I mean, another another thing to just be careful of is that discount brokers, I'm not going to name any names here, but certain ones I have seen kind of heavily promoting things like classes in, or tutorials and options or yeah. tutorials and other derivative products, which, you know, their bottom line is helped by you participating in more expensive trades. So yeah. they, it's a little bit kind of shady in that sense, some, some of them. Um, so just, you know, be aware yeah. when you're using a discount broker of exactly what your fees are. And, I mean, we always just say uh, buy common equity and, yeah. and buy and for the long Go term. Um, the second part of the question, will they affect the market? Yeah. Um, that's that's a probably philosophical question. I'm not <laughs> sure I could kind of foresee. I'll, t I'll, I'll do some more research onto that and yeah. maybe come back 
next podcast. Uh, I don't, I haven't read anywhere any kind of concerns about what impact it'll have on the overall market or yeah. what would happen in a in a downturn based okay. on low cost brokers. Cool. And then the final question we have is from longtime listener Wendy, and she wants to know how do we evaluate restaurant stocks? Um, and I might start with you. I know you're a, a large shareholder in Chipotle. I am actually. It's been. To my own surprise, a, a remarkable winner. I, I nearly lost faith in the business uh, post uh, post decoding. <laughs> yeah, um, but anyway, yes, I've owned very many restaurant stocks over the years, and uh, the U.S. stock markets—that is, the Nasdaq and more not, most notably, rather the New York Stock Exchange—have uh, had a fair share of restaurants listed in them. Not to Wendy's point, but each country's stock market is in to a point an autobiography of that uh, country's history. Yeah. And if you looked at the London Stock Exchange, if you looked at the Dublin Irish Stock Exchange, now called Euronext, or if you looked at the New York Stock Exchange, and the makeup of the businesses listed on those exchanges tells the story of local commerce. And, and in America, fast casual and slow casual and every other type of dining has been very much part of the biography of America. So we have seen so many restaurant stocks listed over the years, too many to count. Half dozen names jump yeah. into my mind immediately on, on more recent listings. And uh, So how do we evaluate restaurant stocks? The very first thing I think a US resident can do, if it's at all feasible, is take a personal assessment yeah. of the product of that business. Now, that does not for an investment thesis make, but, you know, like uh, Peter Lynch in one up on Wall Street advocated I think there was a there was a chain of motels was it called I'm not sure Lacoya or something like that one it was last something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, something. He dipped his toe in the pool and he lay on the bed. And, you know, taking an assessment of a, of a restaurant chain that's floating or recently floated or about yeah. to float um, is, is, I think, a very good starting point. Like us going for Beyond like, Burgers. Exactly. <laughs> you know, you can take a personal view. You've got to buy what you believe in. Now, of course, we got to go deeper than that. And uh, you, I suppose, need to then look at competition in that area of dining if it's another burger joint or if it's something entirely different like mm. uh, you know fast casual Asian street food you know there's a competitive landscape in the food type that you've got uh, but the real I think universally accepted metric to look at in dining or rather restaurant stocks is comps or comparable same store growth I always get tongue tied when I say that so a restaurant can expand its revenues by opening more restaurants but what comps does is it, and Ulta Salon, by the way, uh, reported on comps and I think it was up six point something percent. But comps looks at how has each individual restaurant performed relative to a comparable period 12 a months ago. ago. Yeah. Exactly. So comps is, is a way of looking at how a restaurant is doing. Is the food growing in popularity? Is that restaurant selling more of what it does? Um, I think then you just have to do some benchmarking. Yeah. Um, the opportunity for growth. So to see, I think when I bought Chipotle, it was only in a couple of states, and now I think it's it's all over the it's US. International, it's yeah. international, of course, uh, absolutely. So we, um, you're kind of blending together the uh, your assessment of the viability of total mass market adoption of this particular product, and then you couple it with the data available through comps and 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 you know new new openings yeah yeah importantly on when you when you're talking about comps as well there's two measurements within comps which is the foot traffic that's going through the stores mm. and then the tickets 
the average tickets. Average so tickets. that'll yeah. break. You can break down comps a little bit more, and that would, can show you: is there more people going to the restaurant? Is that what's driving up comps, or is they are they spending more okay, yeah. per item um, to drive up comps? But um, just on, and in terms of restaurants, the restaurant sector itself has gone through what I would call a pretty turbulent couple of years. And I just did a couple, little bit of research here and, and found these numbers. From 2001 to 2017, the number in the restaurants in the US grew from 460,000 to 620,000, a 34% increase. Meanwhile, the population in the US over the same time period only grew 14.5%. Oh, wow. okay. nice. So what you're seeing in the restaurant business is uh, just huge amounts of competition for not enough customers. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, that's probably been driven as well by the fact that there was a big shift uh, to e-commerce, yeah. which left an awful lot of physical locations empty, a lot of stores closing down. And the one thing that you can't get online is going out to a restaurant. So yeah. you have this type of uh, business that people physically have to go to, obviously not if you're getting takeout or whatever like that, but if you want to go to a restaurant, you have to physically go there. So, I mean, what they're dealing with at the moment, the industry is, they've also seen kind of in- increased food prices. And mm. um, there's a lot of pressure on, on wages, uh, yeah. the $15 minimum wage and all that kind of stuff. So it's a very tough sector at the moment to be in. And yeah, I'd be cautious about which one you invest in. You really do need to find something with a differentiated product and a very good digital presence as well. Okay, cool. So that was how to evaluate restaurant stocks. Um, So let's move on to the elevator pitch before we finish up today. So this week, I asked you guys to pick a company that's been a surprising success story for you. So a company that's performed well, but you didn't necessarily expect it to perform well. Um, Rory, I'll come to you first. I'm going to give you 30 seconds. Oh, give me a minute. Come on. Okay. Can I pitch a stock in 30 seconds? <laughs> <laughs> uh, right, okay, go. yeah, God. Uh, so the stock, I'm, I'm not, uh, the, your intro there was a bit misleading because I did think this stock was going to do well. Okay. Um, but I had no idea how well it was going to do. Uh, it really did shock me that how, how, how much, how impressive it's been over the last uh, couple of years. And the stock is Planet Fitness. Uh, so I think, you know, we added it to the showroom evaluated it. It looked like a kind of nice discount gym product that would attract people who didn't want to spend an awful lot on the gym membership. But what actually I think they did there was they created a blue ocean opportunity by going absolutely against the tide in terms of what they were presenting to people, which was cheap, no-nonsense gym membership for people who wanted to go once or twice a week or once yeah. or twice a month. Uh, last quarter, the revenue was up 29%. They had 400,000 new members. Uh, There's now more than 14 million members. Wow. They opened 59 new gyms this quarter, so nearly they're getting up to 1,900 new gyms. Same-store sales comps, which Emma just mentioned, were up nearly 9%. And they had a teen summer challenge program which allowed 15 to 18-year-olds to use their gym for free this summer, and they had 900,000 people join. Wow. So uh, stock's up uh, more than threefold since we added it. So that's the one that's really shocked me. Kind of the opposite to um, Peloton. Yeah, I wonder if I wonder if this new connected fitness will have an impact on them. We'll yeah. have to see going forward. Yeah, mm, cool. Emmett, one minute, the company that surprised you. I'm going to go with number 71 on the world's most valuable brands 2019 list as provided by Forbes. And that brand is Red Bull, which has a brand value of $9.9 billion dollars. Red Bull has sold a cumulative 75 billion cans of its Red Bull soda since it was introduced in 1987 uh, with a marketing strategy built on extreme events. 
Um, and it's an energy drink that la- launched a whole new line of organic sodas in 2018. Uh, and of course, everyone knows it. And it, it is now a synonymous brand with extreme sports and, and giving you wings. And the reason it has surprised me is that has anyone actually tasted it? <laughs> it's awful. Like, I mean, you know, it's back to that kind of Peter Lynch thing. Um, I think that Red Bull is possibly the most vile thing I've ever tasted. <laughs> there was um, an interesting uh, piece that I read somewhere, I can't remember where it was, but that uh, it had to taste bad, Red Bull. Like they made it taste bad on purpose because anything that is supposed to have any sort of tonic effect on you, if it tastes good, you won't believe that it's having any sort of... Benefit. Yeah, so it's like a medicine kind <laughs> yeah, of... Yeah, it's that medicine like, flavour. Okay. And then also those, those thin cans, they're one of the first companies to have those thin, long ah. cans. Uh, with the thinking being that if it was the same ca- size as a can of Coke, people would refuse to pay three times the price. So you had to ah. differentiate it somehow. So genius. But it, it is really a, it is a, a masterstroke of marketing. Oh, yeah. They're and marketing geniuses. They, they are marketing geniuses, yeah. So that's about it from this week's Stock Club. Don't forget all the great new stuff in the My Wall Street app at the moment. And if there's anything you want us to discuss or explain on the next episode, please make sure to get in touch with us on Twitter. That's at MyWallStreetHQ or email us at pod at MyWallStreet.com. Please don't forget to subscribe to Stock Club too. And if you're enjoying the podcast, leave us a review or a rating on whatever podcast platform you listen to us on. That's it from us here. Thanks for listening and we'll talk to you in two weeks. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.